This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Parshas Bishalach, everybody. Parshas Bishalach, 5782. So the Parsha, start, what we're going to talk about today is toward the end of the Parsha. It's in Perak Yud Zion Pasuk Tas. It says, Vayomer Moshe el Yoshua. Moshe Rabbeinu said to Yoshua, Bechar lanu anoshem. It's say Yilachem Ba'amalek. Choose men for us and go wage war against Amalek. Machar anochi nitzav varosh giva umatel elohim biyadi. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the mountain and the staff of a Kaddish Baruch will be in my hand. So the first question that you have to ask is, who was Yoshua? Where did this man come from? We all know Yoshua from the very end, but how did they know him in the beginning? What was so special about him in the beginning? So the Ibn Ezra says that first, he is the grandson of Elishama ben Amihud. Elishama ben Amihud was the Nasi of Shevet Ephraim. That's mentioned in Dibra Yamim, Perak Zayin, Pasach of Zayin. He was the Nasi of Shevet Ephraim and he was... His son was Nun. His grandson was Yoshua ben Nun. Even though Yoshua's name was changed later on by the Maraglim, we all know he was Hoshea ben Nun, and Moshe ben said, Yo, Yoshea Meatzas Maraglim. So he said that Yud was added on right over there. We mention this change now, even though it hasn't happened yet, based on the future. That's the obvious shot. And the Medjish Lakatov says that straight out of Mishpatim Chavdal Yud Gimel, that it's based on what's going to be in the future itself. The Ramban says it seems from right over here that Yoshua was always his name, even before the Maraglam. Maybe the name change took place before, and Moshe Rabbeinu knew prophetically that he would need it in the future. Therefore, the name change took place right then. Or maybe Yoshua, Moshe Rabbeinu privately always called him this name. Since he's calling him privately over here, he spoke to him privately. He always called him that way. Maybe that's the idea behind it. The Rashbam says the same thing in Parsha Shlach. Either he prophetically called it to him earlier, or Moshe Rabbeinu always had that name for him, trying to say that about him. The Ksav Sofer, the Ksav Sofer's son, Rabbi Avram Sofer, says Yoshua needed a Yeshua here. And therefore, he was called Yehoshua at this point because he knew he would need help fighting against a Amalek. That was the concept behind it. He was known as Yoshua only when he needed the Yeshua. He was always Hosea, but when he needed something, something had to happen, that's when the Yud was added onto his name. That happened in two different places, by the Maraglim and so too over here, each time that's what happened. By the Maraglim, it permanently changed to Yoshua, right? Because Ka Yosheich Me'atzas Maraglim. But that's how the Ksav Sofer says it. It was changed each time he needed it. He needed it twice when he fought against the Mulligan over here as well. The Medrash Rabbah in Yud Tasei quotes something, but, well, it's based on the Ksav Sofer, we'll say, but let's go to the Ksav Sofer first in Taurus Moshe. He says the actual name of Yoshua was Yehoshua. He was birthed and his bris name was Yoshua. As he got older, he changed his name to Hosea. Hosea, I guess, sounds like you don't need as much help from others. You don't need God's help anymore. You became a tzaddik in your own right. So people started calling him Hosea. That was the name given to him. Says the Chassam Sofer, at times when he needed it back, he needed extra help, like by the Meraglam. Like over here, there was a Yud added onto his name. But his actual name was Yoshua. They called him Hosea. They went back to the name Yoshua at those different times. So according to this, it seems like I have five answers to why he's known as Yoshua right now. Either because of what was going to happen in the future, that's the Ebenezer, or because from the Ramban, either because Moshe Rabbeinu knew it prophetically, or because Moshe Rabbeinu always called him this name, between him and him, and that was that. The Ksav Sofer says whenever he needed Yeshua, he had a Yud. And the Ksav Sofer says his name was always Yoshua. It was only changed to Hosea when they thought he didn't need the help. When he needed the help, it went back to that. 
The Medrash Rabbah adds on this is in Yud Tasei that Yoshua was a servant of Moshe Rabbeinu even in Mitzrayim. He was 57 years old according to the Miam Loes. According to the Seder Olam, he was only 42 years old. But that's when this happened. Either he was 42 or 57, which, by the way, takes you away from thinking like he's just a nar, like a little kid. He was definitely not a little kid. We know he died at the age of 110. We don't know if he ruled for 28 years, as it says in some places, or if he ruled for only... 14 years. We're not sure exactly. But either way, he was either 42 or 57 at the time. And that was Yoshua. So why was he chosen to fight? Why Yoshua over anybody else? After all, Moshe Rabbeinu was there. Moshe Rabbeinu could have fought. Moshe Rabbeinu fought against Sihon and Og. Why wouldn't he fight in this war and send Yoshua instead? So I found eight answers to the question. But the truth is, I think I have much more than that. Number one, and before we even get into it, I found a Medrash Rabbah. The Medrash Rabbah says in Yutta say that Yeshua was a servant of Moshe Rabbeinu even in Mitzrayim. Now, there is a Medrash that I cannot verify. I, I, I can't tell you if it's a real Medrash or not. It's mentioned in the Sefer Evan Shlema, which was the son of the Vilna Gon, Rav Avram, the son of the Gra. And in Evan Shlema, he brings down a bunch of different Medrashim that nobody heard of, nobody knew. He wanted to tell you which ones were real, which ones weren't. In the Hakdama, in the introduction, he brings down an absolute crazy Medrash which is a combination between like Yonah being swallowed up by a fish and Oedipus and like the, you know, the, the famous story of Oedipus and all these crazy things together. I can't tell you it's a real measure because it seems like it was just thrown into the Hakdama by the printer and I can't tell you it's real. It's in a safer that's verifying real Midrashim. And I can't tell you whether this one is real because it was in the introduction. It seems like a little bit weirder from all the others. But if it's real... It's possible that Yoshua was the chief executioner in Paro's palace. And if he was the chief executioner growing up as a Mitzri, it makes sense that Moshe Rabbeinu brought him to war with him. And it makes sense that he was like this guy who was an expert in arms, and that's the reason why I went. But I have no idea if it's true. I will tell you there is a Medrash Rabbah that says he was a servant of Moshe Rabbeinu even in Mitzrayim before they went to the Midbor. But that doesn't mean anything. It could be that he just met Moshe Rabbeinu after Moshe Rabbeinu came back to Mitzrayim, and he was like, hey, I'd like to hang out with you. That's a possibility. That doesn't tell me anything at all. But I found eight other answers to this question. Number one, the first answer, which everybody knows, and you you all heard this question before, is the Orachai Makadosh. The Orachai Makadosh says, why did a Amalek, why did a Amalek fight Bnei Yisrael all the time? Because they went to Rafidim. Rafi Yadayim in a Torah, they weren't learning Torah properly. Because they weren't learning Torah properly, they were Mevatel Torah. The person that should fight should be the person that represents the Torah the best. The whole reason why a Amalek was there is because they weren't learning Torah properly. Right, so the person who should fight should be the person who does learn Torah properly. It says about Yoshua, Lo Yamish Mitoka Oel. It says, all the way in the end of the Torah. He never stopped learning. From morning until night, he was always there, always learning, always doing what he was supposed to do. He is the quintessential Talmud Chacham who's sitting with Moshe Rabbeinu the entire time. So if you need somebody to fight because of learning, he's the guy to do it. This is the guy. That's the idea behind it. And that's why he would choose the men. Choose men. People like you, Yoshua, who's sitting in the base medrash all day long. Who's going to be able to learn Torah the entire time? That's the idea behind and why he was able to do it. And that makes a lot of sense. They were the ones who were chosen to destroy Amalek. It's funny. Because 
if somebody comes up to you and, they, like, I, I don't know, something happens, a mully comes and fights, the first thing people do is they think of the solution. What should we do to solve it? Most Rebbe's first reaction is, how did this happen in the first place? How could it be that something like this happened? The first reaction he had is, it happened because of Torah, so we'll find somebody to start. That's why he didn't choose Aaron, he didn't choose Kor, right? He chose Yoshua. Yoshua is the greatest Talmud Chacham of them all, and what I mean by that is, the hardest worker of them all, therefore he's the one that's shown. The Chafetz Chaim learns from over here that anything bad that happens to you can be attributed to you not learning. Not only is that a Gemara and Brachos, right? But the truth is, we can all look at ourselves and say, why did that happen to me? Because I wasn't learning properly. I think everybody has that. There's no one that can say, I was learning perfectly well, and therefore, nothing bad could have ever happened to me. You can attribute it to your learning at all times. There is no one who couldn't do such a thing. Says the Chavetz Chaim, that's the power of fighting a Amalek. Always getting involved in learning in one way or another. Tom Vidas with Sternbach says, not only that, you don't have to be a rabbi to fight against the Amalek. Even the Talmud, Yoshua was a Talmud, even he was able to go ahead and do something. He was able to represent the Torah, even though he was just, so to speak, a Talmud and not the rabbi. The Chido over here says every sin that Ben Israel didn't repeat him, they complained. They spoke bad things and complained about a Kaddish Baruch Hu. They didn't learn Torah properly. They were Mechalo Shabbos. Can all be fixed by learning Torah? That's how the Chidah, the Chidah speaks about each one and how it works, and that's Yoshua. But the obvious question is, obviously, right? If you're going for the guy who's the king of Torah to fight against a Malik, who's better than Yoshua? Who would be the person? Moshe Rabbeinu. Isn't that an obvious question? Like, you would choose Moshe over Yoshua any time. He's the one who gave us the Torah. Rav Chaim Knievsky was asked this in Derech Sicha, and his answer is a brilliant answer. He says there's a difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and Yoshua and how they learn Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu's Torah was given to him as a gift from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yes, he went up to Shemayim for 40 days and 40 nights, and yes, he fasted the entire time and didn't drink. And yes, he worked really hard to get what he got, and he's an, I, I, there's no question that there was hard work by him. But it doesn't compare getting the Torah from HaKadosh Baruch Hu versus getting it from even Moshe Rabbeinu. It doesn't compare. Yoshua had to work harder than he should no- normally work. Meaning, he was going over it again and again and again and again. He was chazering over and over again. He went through it in the morning, in the evening. He was there from the beginning till the very end. Yes, Moshe Rabbeinu worked hard, but nothing like what Yoshua had to do, in which he didn't get it as a gift. He had to make sure that he was there getting everything from Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore, says Rechaim Knievsky, to fight a Amalek, you can't take somebody who's a brilliant genius who gets Torah like that and goes through Dothim one after the other. You need somebody who worked really, really hard because that's what a Amalek is. A Amalek is about the Suffolk. It's about not working that hard, being lazy. That's the person. Yoshua is the right person to fight. He's the person to get right over here. That's how the Derech Sicha says it. I like that. I really like that answer. To work really hard makes you the right person to be able to fight over Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah, Barbanel says a different answer, and it's also an obvious answer. Moshe Rabbeinu is the leader. If he fought, nobody would know what to do in the camp. He'd have five, I, I don't know, 600,000 people doing nothing. He'd have his people fighting, but then nobody else would do anything. What did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He showed everybody what you're supposed to do when others are fighting. If he would go fight, then everybody would just sit there doing nothing. Now that he's davening, he's davening for everybody sitting, standing on top of a mountain with his arms up, 
davening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, now they would know what to do. Obviously, if they could fight, they would fight. But if they couldn't fight, at least they'd have a solution that if something else they were able to do over here, the Ramban says Moshe Rabbeinu wanted the people to see his arms up in the air and do exactly as he's doing. And the Medrash Rabbah says, the Pirkei Rebbe Lezer, I'm sorry, says this in Perak Mem Dalet. Every Jew went outside of their tent and they saw Moshe Rabbeinu. When Moshe Rabbeinu put his hands up to the Shemayim to daven, they all put their hands up to Shemayim. When he got down on his knees to daven to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, then they got down on their knees. When he prostrated himself on the ground all the way through, they also sat down on the ground, went all the way, prostrated themselves on the ground. To daven just like Moshe Rabbeinu. He knew that the tefillos would be needed to fight against the Amalek, and he did exactly what he needed to do. And that's the idea behind it. He knew, what do we say, guys? Hakol kol Yaakov, that the voice is Yaakov, the tefillah had to be with Yaakov if the they're going to fight against Esav itself. And that makes the most sense. And who knows? It's possible. This is Misa Abu Simulabanan. We do see in the future this concept of what's going to be in the future. Mashiach ben Yosef fighting a war and Mashiach ben David davening at the exact same time. Now I recognize Moshe Rabbeinu is not from Shevet David. Yoshua is from Shevet Ephraim, from Yosef. So Mashiach ben Yosef represented by Yosef at Tzadik's kid fighting, Yoshua ben Nun fighting. Mashiach ben David, however, is representing Moshe Rabbeinu, or Moshe Rabbeinu is representing Mashiach ben David, and that's what's going to be in the future, that something is going to happen a little bit different. It's possible that that's exactly what's going to be lost at level. I don't know. There's a possibility behind that. Okay, there are other answers. Number two. Our second answer from the Psikta Rabbasi, Semenu Gimel, he says this was not up to Moshe Rabbeinu. It was the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Mini Ephraim Shorashim Ba'amalek. It's Ephraim that's able to fight Amalek. Devorah is saying that in her Shira. Yosef Atzadik said, even as an Egyptian, Eselo Kimani Yoreh. I fear God. And Amalek is known for Lo Yoreh Elohim. They're the antithesis of what Amalek stands for. They're the opposite of what Esav is. He is the fire to Esav's kash, to Esav's straw. So we don't see HaKadosh Baruch Hu telling Moshe Rabbeinu to fight. Moshe Rabbeinu would have done this on his own if it was, but instead he sent Yo somebody from Yosef, I don't know if Yoshua was the greatest of the people of Yosef at the time, but somebody specifically from Yosef at Tzadik, and HaKadosh Baruch who told him to do so in order for this to be. We see this all over the Medrash, where David Amalek would not fight wars unless he had someone in his army from Yosef's Shevet, from Yosef's family. That's the only way. It's in Baba Basra, Kuf, Kuf Chav Gimel Amad Aleph. Can you imagine that? He had to go through his army saying, is anyone here from Ephraim or Manasseh? And only then would he fight against Edom or Amalek or somebody like that. He wouldn't do it otherwise. I'm sure that was very difficult because what's funny is he fought when he was running away from Shaul Amalek. At one point he ran to the, the area of the Plishtim and he kept going down. He was living in Siklug at the time, again, running away from Shaul Amalek and he was fighting against Amalek. The Sukkim tell us that he was fighting against Amalek and then they would ask him, what did you do today? And he said, oh, I fought the Jews. He would lie to the king of the Pelishim to make him think that he was on his side when really he was fighting against Amalek. That meant that while he was doing this with his three, four, six hundred men, however many went to war and didn't watch over the Kalim, he had to have somebody from Shevet Ephraim with him or Shevet Menashe. It's a crazy thing to think about, but that's what he said. The party Joseph said the schus of Asa was that he accomplished Kibud Av. He was Machabed Av. He had a taina against the Shrotan. They weren't Machabed their father properly. They didn't do it properly. So therefore, it has to be someone from Yosef or Binyamin 
who didn't sell their brother, who didn't go against, it had to be someone over there that caused this to happen for them to be able to be that way. So Rachel and Emanuel's children who weren't involved in the sale could fight against Asav, against the Malik. They're the only ones who could. So that's answer number two. Answer number two is the reason why Yeshua fought is because you need Yosef at Tzadik involved. Ellie, yeah. Right, exactly. Shoal, well, it wasn't Shoal specifically. It was, as a king, the first thing you need is you have to build, you have to, you have to have three things. Number one, you make a king. Number two, you fight a Malik. Once you destroy a Malik, then you build the base of Mikdash. So those are the three. So the second thing after Shoal was made king was right there. But he wouldn't have to worry because, right, he was from Sheva ben Yamin and therefore wouldn't have to worry about much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we only needed to make sure one. That's why, that's why when he was fighting against Siklug, that's the, that's the Kiddush over here, that even when he was fighting against Siklug, right, while, while Shaul Amelech was still the king, right, then David Amelech had to find somebody, which is crazy. Now, I'm going to go through some quick ones, guys. There are some really quick ones. Shmos Rabbi Chav of the Moshe's Kingdom says, this was to ready Yoshua for the wars that they would have when they went into Eretz Canaan. Obviously, they knew that Yoshua was going to bring them in and fight the wars. Therefore, it was to get them ready for the future. Moshe's Kingdom, Rabbi Ophrine, number four, says it took place in Ir, the mazel of Ir is a shore. So they wanted someone from Yosef, who is the mazel of a shore. Obviously, we all know his picture was a shore, to fight in that, in that month, especially because Asav is known as a shore, a goring ox. So to go up against Asav, the goring ox, they wanted to find a shore from Yosef Atzadik in the month of Ir, the shore. That's number three, four. That's when Moshe is getting the Rabbeinu Ephraim. Number five, Miam Lois says that Moshe Rabbeinu told Yeshua was his ancestor Yosef, who had brought them all to Mitzrayim in the first place. Had they been in Eretz Canaan, Asav never would have fought them. But now they were in Mitzrayim, so they came out. So it's Yosef's fault. Therefore, somebody from Yosef should go ahead and fight against the Malik. That's number five. Number six, the Shach, the Abarbanel, the Miam Lois all suggest. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't want to find himself or send down because he didn't want a Malik to brag that they fought their leaders, that B'nai Israel were scared of them. Remember how Akadosh Baruch, the way that it's said in Rashi in Parshish Kisetze, is that a Malik wanted to cool down the waters. It's like a huge bath that's boiling hot. The first person that goes in cools down the entire bath. So that's what Amalek did. Asher Kor Chabaderech, they met you on the road, they made it cooler. They jumped in to see, it's not that bad. Yeah, we're scalding, we're boy- we just burned our skin off, but we died, said Amalek. But we're willing to do it to show you that the Jews are still human. That's what they were trying to do. So the answer number six that they're saying is, is that since they were coming in only to cool something down, it would be horrible if a Rebbe, the leader, would go up against them. Because that would show everybody, see, they're scared of us. They're scared of us. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu sent a student, a little guy. No one's ever heard of him before. Sent Yoshua to say, we're not even going to send Aaron. I'm not even sending Hur. I'm not sending Kalev. I'm sending Yoshua. I'm sending Yoshua. That's why he did it specifically, so they would know that they still lost to an unknown Young Nar. That was Eddie behind That's number six. Number seven, Revaria Kaplan. I, there's nothing like Revaria Kaplan in this world, right? In the Living Torah, in the Purple Book, right? And we've talked about this before. It looks like a Reformed synagogue temple saver. You know, like, can we call it a saver? It's just amazing. But Revaria Kaplan is amazing. He says this, but I've seen this again in the Meshachachma. So don't call him an Apikoros for saying this. He says, Yosef's children may never have been enslaved. Meaning when we talk about the slavery of Mitzrayim and the people that lived in Goshen, that may have been everyone but Yosef's kids. 
We don't know. I'm sorry. And Levi. He goes on. He says Levi was always enslaved in that they couldn't leave, but that they weren't enslaved in that they weren't doing the work for the people. He's saying he said the Meshachachma is the one that says it was it was Yosef's kids, Ephraim, Menashe, and Reuven. For some reason, that's Meshachachma. But he has his reasons. He doesn't mention Levi because they were still part of the servitude because they lived in Goshen, etc. But they weren't part of the real servitude. Ravaria Kaplan says they were never enslaved. And again, the Meshachachma says the same elsewhere. They kept a very strong militia. Can you imagine this? Ephraim and Menashe kept a militia. They were the Jewish army. The Jewish army among the Mitzrayim. When people needed to go out and fight, the Mitzrayim called on Ephraim and Menashe who had standing armies to be with them the whole time. Now remember, there were 30,000 of them that left with Yignon, the false prophet. It's mentioned in Divrei Ayamim, Chelek Aleph, Perak Zion, right there, where it says that Yignon brought all these 30,000 people out. They left 30 years early. They fought against the Amalekim and they lost. When they went out, the Pelishim killed them, the Amalekim killed them, the Mitzrayim killed them, whatever it was, the Machlokas Midrashim. But they all went out. How in the world were they able to get out? Because they weren't enslaved. How in the world did they know how to fight? Because they were from Ephraim and Menashe. Says Rabbi Kaplan. It could be that Yoshua was in Shevet Ephraim. He was already a general. He was a general. Then when everybody asked, why was Yoshua sent? What did Yoshua do? He was well known as a general from Shevet Ephraim who had been known for years that way. Because they had a standing militia. They were the guards. It's possible that it's like that. Now, obviously, that's difficult because if they had an entire army, then what were the Jews doing enslaved? Why were there slave slave Jews? I don't know. Maybe they had an army and they knew how to fight, but they were still cowed by the Mitzrayim's army. Maybe they were still put in, you know, they obviously they had limitations. I don't know. I can't tell you for sure, but it's possible that's that way. But that's an unbelievable little line over here. There's a Yalkut Shimoni. That says in Divrei Hayamim, number 1177, number 1177, that says, Nun was a massive general in Ephraim's army. He's, it's Mashma that Nun was one of the 30,000 people who left and died by the Plishtim. So Yoshua may have taken over when his father died in the war 30 years earlier. It's such an unbelievable measure. Yeah. So if that's the case, and this is actually connects to a previous question I was about to ask, which is, when last week's Parsha, when the Mitzrayim come, and they're Hamushim, but they don't know how to fight, yeah. right? That there's the whole thing, so when the Jews don't know what to do, and then they're supposed to just go, what are you crying about, right? Well, no, there were some of them that wanted to fight. And Kodesh Baruch said, Atam Takarishim, you guys be silent, you're not going, Atam Takarishim, I'm sorry, it's for the davening. Um, the other one is, go forward instead of backward. But there were, there were out of the four people, some of them wanted to, they didn't, there, some of them wanted to go to sea. Some of them wanted to go back to Mitzrayim. Some of them wanted to fight. Some of them wanted to daven. The ones who wanted to fight, there were people like that. And there may have been people that had weapons, but they weren't all like experts and there were very, very few people. So why yeah. in this case? So I guess the, the other side of the question is why in this case are they choosing to fight and not just moving forward? A mullik. It's a mullik. Yeah, yeah, a mullik is totally different. It, we are going to get to it. Believe Nether, that's a great question, but I, I'm going to get to it. The, the basic answer, which you can answer just off the top of your head, is Mitzrayim versus Amalek. Mitzrayim wanted to enslave them. There's no chiyuv. I mean, they had them beforehand, and they wanted to continue to enslave them. Amalek wanted to destroy their spirituality and their ruchnias. That you have to get up and fight. You're required to get up.
up and fight. He had no choice for that. But we'll get to that. We're going to get to that over there. Okay, that was number seven. There's a shock who goes into the concept of Nar. You can look it up inside. It's, I, I, it's Kabbalistic. It's strange. There's a Yalku Ruveni, number 218 and 219, all about that as well. There's a Chidah that says Asaph represents the Mazel of Madim, which we talked about in the past, the Mazel of Mars. Someone under that Mazel either grows up to be a murderer, a thief, or a Shochet and a, a, a Mohel. That's why they cut off the Milas of Shevet Dan. They threw them up to the heavens to say, that's what we're going to do. We're murderers, etc. The Arab Rab, they threw him up. That was their power. Moshe Rabbeinu did not have that power because Moshe Rabbeinu was born with the bris mila, which means he didn't have the power of the bris with him. But Yoshua was born as an Arl. He gave himself a bris, not himself, but a bris mila was given to him. And then he was the one who was the Moel for all of Klal Yisrael. He gave them a bris mila in Mitzrayim right before, right before, what's it called? Right before they ate the Korban Pasach. And he did it again when they went into Eretz Canaan. So because he had the power of the mila, he had the koach of the mila with him. Therefore, Yoshua is the perfect person to go up against Esau. That's the perfect person to go up against the, the people right over there. So that's another answer. That's number nine. Number ten, the Ksav Sofer says, this is brilliant. I, I, this is a long piece. I'm just going to say it really quickly. Yosef, in order to fight against the Malik, you must be Lashem Shemayim. You have to do things for the right reason. Moshe Rabbeinu may have done it. He may have been involved because we see later on, Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry. Moshe gets upset. It's possible he would have done things in part vengeance against what had happened beforehand. In order to do something properly, you have to, you're going to want to fight them all. Like, you've got to do it, Lashem Shemayim. Therefore, he sent Yoshua. Yoshua did not have that vengeance in mind. He was going to be able to do it, Lashem Shemayim. Now, I'm skipping a bunch over here, but that's the basic answer. Now, Right, Moshe Rabbeinu always felt that way, and when people did stuff like that, he got super angry. You can't fight a Malik for that reason. You can only fight them because the Kaddish Baruch Hu told you to. Listen, it's sort of easy in a certain way. If, and again, this is the only time where they're ever allowed to do it, and only through a Navi, we've never done it on our own, but if we're supposed to destroy a Maliki babies, none of the reasons of why we destroy a Malik would apply. They don't apply. That's sick to kill a baby. The only way we'd be able to do it is L'shem Shemayim. And even then, it's crazy. It's nutty to tell a person to do that. But Shola Melech was told to do it, to not have any mercy on anybody. And again, from a Navi, he was told to do it. We can't just go around saying, like, we kill babies, right? But it, it's a crazy thing to do. If you have any thought of any Hana when fighting against a Malik, it's possible, the, the Ksav Sofer goes on and says this, it's possible not only are you not Makayim, the mitzvah of destroying a Malik, you're over a murder. You're over a murder. Because you are, you're murdering a human being. It's possible that that would apply in that case. It's crazy, but it's a longer piece from the Ksav Sofer. I'm giving it as an answer, but it's a huge piece that he goes through. Yalka Gershuni says Timna, who's the mother of Amalek, Timna is the one that married Eliphaz, right? She was rejected by the others because they knew Kashem Geren Kisapachas, that sometimes Geren can be a horrible thing for Klai Yisrael. They understood that. Moshe Rabbeinu accepted the Erevrav. Clearly, he was okay with Garen. So Moshe Rabbeinu was not the person that Amalek was upset at. Amalek was upset at other people that didn't want to accept Garen. But Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who accepted the Garen. So Yoshua was the one who fight because he was part of the other right out there. But then comes number 12. And this is our 12th answer, technically our 13th answer. But it's an itziv. And it is brilliant. Moshe Rabbeinu lived a life of miracles. Moshe Rabbeinu, everything he did, he threw down his staff and turned into a snake. He touched something and turned into blood. He made saras on his hands. He made the makos, all ten makos. He did kriyas yamsuf. Moshe Rabbeinu had a cloud surrounding them, the mun coming down from the heavens, and a be'er shomirim right there in front of him. His whole life was filled with nisim. Although we haven't seen it yet, his face starts to shine. 
He has this light emanating from his face where he had to cover it with a mask because of how crazy Moshe Rabbeinu was. He was not just awesome. He was the most awesome of the awesomes. He lived a world that we're not in. He lived in a world that wasn't there. He went 40 days and 40 nights on our Sinai without eating or drinking. That's ridiculous. We can't do that. That's not a human thing to do. Moshe Rabbeinu's world, the Midbar, was not a world that we were ever expected to stay in. That might even been the Miraglam's problem. The spies thought, if we stay in the Midbar, we'll just be learning all day long. That's the greatest thing in the world. And Akash Baruch Hu didn't want that. He wanted them going to Eretz Yisrael. The land of Eretz Yisrael had to be fought with natural wars. Yoshua was the natural counterpart to Moshe Rabbeinu's miracles. Moshe Rabbeinu is the sun, and Yeshua reflects the sun. He can do certain miracles at certain times, but the wars are going to be fought with strategies. There's going to be the strategy of how to destroy the eye. Yes, there's going to be the walls of Yericho falling down by blowing chauffeurs, which is miraculous, there's no question. The fact that they didn't lose people in all these wars when they were fighting against the, the many armies of Chatzor, the king of uh, the Yavin, the king of Chatzor, and all the other people, there were some awesome things going on. But Yoshua is natural winning. It's a natural world. And we said it before that Yoshua was going to be prepared. Says in Etziv, Derech Hateva, by way of nature, you could not fight against a Malik with Moshe Rabbeinu's world. They had to see that Yoshua was going to take over and things were going to be natural from that point on. So there was like a pause. Yes, Moshe Rabbeinu fought Sihon and Og later on. Yes, he did. And yes, they fought against Midian, etc. But right now, where we think we're going into Eretz Yisrael very soon, the Meraglam doesn't happen, they're going in, they have to see that there is a way of winning B'derech HaTeva. That's the idea behind it. And therefore, they have to choose strong men, says the Nitziv. These weren't regular men, they were stronger men. People that will be able to fight the war, that's the idea. And the Malvim says the same. He says, Og and Sichon were miraculous battles, Moshe Rabbeinu had to, had to fight himself. But this is a world of Hester Panim. Hashem is already angry at them that they weren't learning Rafidim. So he, so to speak, hid his face and turned to the side and didn't want to be there in order for it to be a normal battle where Moshe Rabbeinu could not be there. It had to be Yoshua's specialty. That's the idea behind it. He would know how to fight the normal battle and that's the reason why he was put inside. Okay, we got a lot over here. Okay, so that's just the beginning. That's why Yeshua was chosen. We just gave 12 reasons. Rashi says, when it says say, it meant to go outside in Anani HaKavod. You have to leave the Anani HaKavod. Now, seemingly, that would be weird. Why leave? If you're in the Anani HaKavod, they can't get to you. They can't shoot arrows into the Ananiya Kavod. Nothing's going to happen if you're in the Ananiya Kavod. Why didn't Akash Baruch Hu just say, like, when Amalek was out there, like, making fun of them, right? Why not just say, like, whatever, you can't get to us. <laughs> we're sitting inside the Ananiya Kavod. There's no way you can get to us. And we're just going to keep moving with the Ananim around us. Why would they do it? So it's interesting. The Chassam Silver says in his Drushos, Chelek Al, page 110, that the word say, 91, is a gematria of Yudke Vavke, Aleph Dalit Nun Yud. When you fight evil, you have to fight evil. When evil shows forth its face, you have to go there, fight them, combat them, and go and do something to be able to fight. Hold on one second, Shlomo. The Mayana Shel Torah says, that's the reason why, and this gets to your question before, Dave. By the Yam, they were told to be silent and just go forward. Do not fight the Mitzrayim. Do not turn around. I'll fight the Mitzrayim, says Hashem. You guys go forward. But here they're told to fight and they daven. What's the difference? And it goes back to what the Nitziv said before. You always have to have bitachon that a Kaddish Baruch is going to take care of you, especially if you have a Moshe Rabbeinu right there and you've already been through all these miracles. You have to have bitachon that a Kaddish Baruch is going to be there. When Mitzrayim is chasing after them with their entire army to bring them back to slavery, that's when we put ourselves in a Kaddish Baruch hands and assume that he's going to take care of us because he's the one that took us out. He's the one that told us to leave. He's the one that did everything. So we assume it's going to be up that way. But when someone is fighting for Yadus, 
when they're fighting against, and that's what Amalek stands for, then we have a chiv to wait, wait, get up and wage war for our spiritual lives. Fighting Amalek epitomizes a war against evil and kfira and everything bad in this world. That's why it was forbidden for us to remain silent. We have to go out and fight. And that's why say is being used over here for Avaya Elohim, for everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu stands for, Avaya Adnos, I'm sorry, Aleph Dalet Nun Yud, to go up against what they stand for and everything that they are, then you go out and fight. There are some times where we have to sit back, relax, and let them do whatever it is, and it doesn't matter to us. HaKadosh Baruch will take care of us. And other times you go to fight. When it's a malik, you go and fight. Yes, Shlomo, what are you going to say? I'm going to get to that. You're right. You're 100% right. So there's another answer that since Shevet Dun was dying in Erevrav, were dying from outside because they weren't inside the Anani Akavod, that's why they had to go. There is another answer like that. I'm just giving that answer from the Mayanashal Torah based on that, based on that idea from the Chassam Sofer. All right, there's an interesting one over here. Tomorrow, Machor, tomorrow we'll go ahead and fight. So I'm skipping over here. There's a Rashi. There's a Yelas Shachar from Steinman. I also have an Ibn Ezra over here where they would see it, etc. And the Miamlois itself. But Rav Schwab says Machor, the reason why tomorrow is to give them time to do tshuva for not learning properly for the last few days. In other words, don't just rush into the war. You guys also sinned. We all sinned because we didn't learn for the last three days. And if we didn't learn for the last three days, we're not going to win this war. So Machor, tomorrow we're going to go ahead and fight because tonight we have stuff to do. We have to learn. We have to do tshuva. We have to get ourselves ready for the battle tomorrow. Okay, but there's a very interesting Rav Avram of Slunim, the Slunim Rebbe says the following. He says, Machor defines Amalek. What does that mean? Amalek is tomorrow do tshuva. Tomorrow I want you to go learn. Tomorrow, like you sit up and you're like, oh man, you know what? I think I'm going to finish Shas. I'm going to start tomorrow. That's Amalek. That's your Yetzir Haro. If you say I'm going to start right now, that's one thing. You say, I'm only doing it tomorrow? <laughs> it's never going to happen. We all know it's never going to happen. How many times have you said, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to do that tomorrow, and then it, it just it fizzed, it fizzed away. That was it. You tried, and it just doesn't work. He says, that's the pshat. And that's why the Gemara says in Yuman Nebezim Abez that machor is one of the five, maybe six words, uh, five words in Tanakh that have no hachreya. We don't know how to read it. We don't know if you're supposed to read it like this. Are you supposed to read it as... Choose men and go fight against the Malik tomorrow, or to choose men and go fight against the Malik. Tomorrow you will see me on top of the hill. I don't know. There's no way to define what the Machor is referring to. Is the end of that first part the beginning of the second part? In Trump, we say it's the end of uh, the end of uh, the, it's the beginning of the second part, and that's why I put the comma right over there in these sheets, right, to be able to say it that way. But it's possible that's the idea behind it that it's in between. What's what's up? I, th- I think either way you can read it. Either way you can read it. It's rather, should you fight tomorrow or tomorrow I'll get up on the mountain but start fighting tonight. But that's the idea behind it. That's the idea of what it is. Rabbi Yitzhak Zobershin says, this happens often when you're in the middle of doing a mitzvah where the Yitzhak gets involved and says, I think you should do it tomorrow. For example, Rechaim Knievsky was once learning with Rabbi Yitzhak Zobershin, their brother-in-laws. They're both son-in-laws of Rav Yashiv. They were learning with each other in Bnei Brak, and it was Friday 2 p.m., I'm making up a time here, but early afternoon, and a guy came up to Rechaim Knievsky and offered, offered, thought of a shidduch for a certain girl who lost her father, right? And said, I think I thought of a shidduch for this person. So Rechaim Knievsky then daven mincha, and then immediately after that, went over to the mother's house, the almana's, the widow's house. She, he read the shidduch on Friday, two hours before Shabbos. 
So I found this in three different svarim, by the way. It was in three different svarim where I found this story. Where Chaim Knievsky went. When they asked him, what, it's Friday afternoon. It's not like anybody's going to make any shy questions. They're not going to go into the shidduch right now. Why would he do it Friday afternoon? He said simply, it's a mitzvah. How would I push off a mitzvah until Sunday? What, I, why in the world would I push it off? It's not like I have that. Like, how long does it take to shampoo my hair? I'll be fine. You know, like, what big deal? It's not that big of a deal. So Chaim Kanievsky said, like, if I have to do it on Friday afternoon, I'm going to do it on Friday afternoon. That's what I'm going to do. That's the idea behind it. Because a mullig is all about, just do it tomorrow. You'll do it on Motzeh Shabbos. Chaim Kanievsky is saying, like, maybe on Motzeh Shabbos, the shidduch isn't going to work out. But it'll work out if I bring it up today. If it's that important, maybe it'll happen right now. That's the way we have to act when it comes to any mitzvah, any single mitzvah. If you have the opportunity to do it right then, then go ahead and do it. Now, there's a lot of questions why he had his staff with him. And I realize this is my third shear this year about the staff of Moshe Rabbeinu. I recognize that. And there might be a reason for that. Maybe there's hashkacha that every single time I'm bringing up something that happens to have the staff in it. But it, this is an amazing idea. Why was the staff there if he didn't use it? Moshe Rabbeinu didn't use it. He was davening, right? He put his hands up to the heavens. He lied down on the ground. It's not like he used the staff. Why would he bring the staff with him? Why would he mention it, right? I'm going to stand there with the matia lokim biadi. What was the point? Stephen Ezra says the staff was in his hands when he lifted up his hands to daven. He lifted up in his hands and he put up the staff in his hands while he was davening. Targionison said it was to invoke the schus of the avos and the imos. Maybe the staff was there for that reason. Who knows, right? The idea behind it is there were miracles in Mitzrayim, the miracles over here. Says Stephen Ezra, he brought it in his hands when he davened. The Sforno says, no, the staff was show, showing the people what they should do when they should start davening with them. They would be able to daven together. It was sort of like the Alexandrians in their massive shoal. You couldn't hear the chazan. So the only way they knew to answer Amen was by flags being waved. They had flags that they would show in the beginning, in the front of the shoal. And if they waved a flag a certain way, then they knew to answer Amen. If they waved a flag another way, they knew that they should stand up or sit down. They all followed what the flags were doing. And this is the same way. The staff was there to show everybody what to do. I don't know. Maybe when the staff was up, everybody should stand up. Staff down. I, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea what. But that's how the Sforno says it. The Rambando says, no way. He wasn't holding the staff. The staff was on the ground. He pointed it at the Amalekim to remind the Amalekim that this staff did all those crazy things. I could give you makos. I could bring Kriyas Yamsuf again. But then he put it down and he started davening. To show them he was not going to punish them, it was going to be a natural war. That's what he did. But he only brought it to, to threaten them, but not to actually use it. He never used the magic wand to be able to get them down. The Chizkuni also says his hands were up and that's what happened. The flag bearers do this in wars. They put up a flag and whatever it is, it's like a morale thing. Where if the flag is up high, then they all know that it's right out there. But the Ksav Silver says, that's not the point of the flag. The whole point of the mate, of the staff, was to say, in Mitzrayim, you needed a staff to do wonders. In Mitzrayim, you needed stuff like this. But this isn't going to be a wonder. It's a natural war. He was going to take the staff and put it to the side to show everyone we don't need this anymore. We're done with the staff. The staff has no need whatsoever. Umate elokim yebi will be in my hand, said Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't need the staff. I don't need to do anything anymore. That's the idea behind it. There's a chasam sofa over here as well. There's a panam yafos and itziv that just in case, then itziv is the best. He's like, it was a natural battle. But just in case they started losing. <laughs> Isn't this great? Yeah, the matzah, just in case. And at one point he'll just bring about frogs or something. 
Like, it would be there. It was there just in case. That's the best mitzvah in the world. Like, yeah, they were supposed to fight a natural war. It's all going to be about nature. It's going to be about beating them normally. But if something goes wrong, <laughs> then there's always a backup. And the backup is turn them into newts and stuff like that. That, that would be the easy way out. Yeah. Yeah, so the question I had, I mean, and this goes back to the previous thing you were talking about, Yoshua, when they go into the, into the land. Yeah. Like, you're saying natural, but the, real, the reality is it's not really natural. Moshe is diving. And he's getting like they're getting this crazy power from from Shemayim. So neck, Yoshua, yeah, when he yeah. Goes to Israel, he's holding. The I hear sun you. In I hear you. Right, right. No, no, no. There are down. definitely miracles that happen, but that one right there at one point, I don't know when I'm going to do it. I almost did it this year. I that Gemara in Rosh Hashanah that says every time that he lifted up his hands, Bnei Yisrael were winning. Every time he put his hands down, Bnei Yisrael were not winning. Right. I have no idea what that means. Were they playing like arm wrestling? <laughs> like every time Moshe Rabbeinu had his hands up, they were like this. Every time his hands were down, they were like that. Like this is war. There's no such thing as like winning and losing, well, unless I mean, it's like dying it, and not dying. It it's very strange. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. It's there's no question. There's always going to be the schlitz of Moshe Rabbeinu. There's going to be mirac- miracles happening. But is the essence of the war going to be natural? The essence of the war going to be miraculous? That's so what's going to be based on. Like, didn't didn't it was only there to let them dive in. but uh, all right that's for another time i'm not going into that this year i really wanted to go into that this year but I, this took too much time anyway this is that at the end rashi says that the men that are chosen should be strong men who have a fear of heaven now what's funny about that is the parties of the mekach tov and the gan rabba they all point out that that's actually an amachlokis in yalku shimoni rebbe elazar modoy and rebbe yoshua argue what men did he choose? One opinion is that he chose really strong men. And the other one is that he chose men that were fears of heaven, those that feared heaven. <laughs> Which one was it? How do you, you can't have both, right? It's either they chose really strong men or they pe- picked people that were fear of heaven. And if you say it's both, then there's no machlokas. Why would they, why would there seemingly be an argument over here? Why would Rashi bring down both and not even mention the machlokas? Listen to this, this is brilliant. He said, you know, you have to wonder, how did Yoshua knew, know that these men that he chose were be Yireh Elohim, that they feared God? How do you define somebody who's a Yireh Elohim? How do you find that? You either know that he's a fear, you know, that he fears God or not. If Hashem's telling him that, that's fine. But here it's Bechar Lanu Anashim. You choose Yoshua. How is Yoshua supposed to know that? So there was one way. Does anybody know? In the midboard, you could always tell who was a tzaddik and who wasn't. Dr. Goose did not work. I probably, the man. Where was the mun? That's better than Dr. Goose. If the mun was right there, right in front of their tent, they were tzaddikim. But if it was further away, then you weren't as much of a tzaddik. By the way, that, that must have been harrowing when you wake up in the morning and you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> you can imagine if it was like four miles across and your neighbor has it right there in front of him. And you're just like, you, you go outside and you're like, oh man. And the other guy is just like, oh, mine's right here. I hope you had a good day yesterday. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. Can't, can't even imagine. You get earlier than your neighbor. Right, right. They, they had to get away. super early. <laughs> take his newspaper, you know, take it over. But like there was, but there was one other person, by the way, who also had the mun put right by their tent. If they were old and weak, if they couldn't walk all the way out to go get the mun, then they'd be old and weak. Then they had to have it right there in front. So now you get it. The only way to tell if somebody was a Yuria Lokim through the mun is to know if he was also strong. So if the man was right by his tent, you knew he was a tzaddik. But maybe he's weak. No, no, no. Pick people who you know are strong, and then if the man is there, then you also know they're Yireh Elohim. 
So even though it's technically a machlokis, which ones went to war? Was it only Giborim or only Yerelokim? It could be that both were used in order to define who the Yerelokim were, which means essentially Rashi's paskening like Rabbi Yoshua, who says it was Yerelokim, not the Giborim. Isn't that interesting? That's such an interesting answer. That's what he says. There's a Torah more in Oznayim Latorah is here, over here as well. But now we're getting to the best part and I got two minutes to do it. You ready? Rashi then brings it over that you should choose men who know how to nullify, knock out Kshafen. Because the children of Amalek were well-known wizards who did tons of magic. The Chizkuni, the Rabbin Ephraim, said the men chosen should all have birthdays in Adr Shani. So they should have, not have to worry about the magic Amalek would do with them. For some reason, Adr Shani has no mazel. And therefore, their abilities of magic are only effective against those people who are born in the regular 12 months. Anybody here born in Adrashani? Okay, so we're all susceptible to magic. Fine, that's fine. In fact, the Torah Shlema brings a medrash. He says that Yoshua himself was born in Adrashani. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu didn't fight. Because he was born in Adar Rishon. And Yoshua was born in Adar Shani. And that's why he said, Bechar Lanu, choose for us. Because maybe he was born in the seventh of Adar. Maybe he was born in Adar Shani. But the point was is that he needed somebody who was born in Adar Shani to go up against them. Rabbi Bechaya says also that they were expert astrologers. They chose men to fight who were not supposed to die that year. They knew that through their magics, whatever it was. And Yoshua was therefore to choose men that were also not supposed to die that year. Yoshua also knew that. In the end, neither one was able to kill each other. That's by Yachlos Yoshua. It's Say by Yarog Yoshua, he didn't kill them. He weakened them because none of them could die because the magics that the Amalek were using somehow weakened them but didn't kill them. The Kedushas Levi says the reason Moshe Rabbeinu had the Mata in his hands is because the word Mata means to turn things around. Maybe the staff represented how Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to turn everything around, even the Mazolos and the entire world. He stopped the Mazolos from running, he stopped the Kisha from working, and therefore, as a Tzadik goes there and Hashem is Mekayimit, maybe that destroyed all the magic they were using. Roshami Roshana Gimulchas says Amalek chose men whose birthdays were on that day. You don't die on your birthday, only if you're a big tzaddik, right? Or you're not going to be killed on your birthday, even if you are, but for sure, if you're a big tzaddik. That's what he did. So what did Moshe Rabbeinu do? He was ma'arbev the mazolos. He turned it all around. He used the mate. We thought it was a staff. He turned around all the mazolos so that it wasn't necessarily their birthday on that day. The Malbim says, it's possible that in this war in which Moshe Rabbeinu stopped the sun in the middle of the sky. We know that Yoshua stopped the sun in the middle of the sky, as you just mentioned. We know that it happened by Naktim Ben-Gurion. But it all says that Moshe Rabbeinu did it. When did Moshe Rabbeinu stop the sun in the middle of the sky. It could be here. It might have been here. It might have been in this war to stop the sun in the middle of the sky so no magic could be used so that Amali couldn't use their kishav whatsoever. I'm going to end with this. Yaros Gavash and Drush Gimel, this is Rabbi Yonas and says, Haman thought that everything Moshe and Aaron did was through kishav. So when the Goral, the lottery of Purim, fell out on Zion Adar, he was happy. He thought that the Jews wouldn't be able to use magic because that year was a leap year and it fell out in Adar Shani. And magic is mevatel through Adar Shani. He thought all the Jews were doing magic and therefore Adar Shani would be mevatel completely. He didn't realize that not only did Moshe Rabbeinu die in Adar Shani, and that's why he thought it was because he was a magician and only magicians can only die in Adar Shani because there's no magic working in that month, he also was born in Adar Shani. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu was not affected by magic. He had nothing to do with magic whatsoever. And that was Haman's mistake in the first place, Rav Yonas and Ibshit says, all based on this. So I know I said that in three and a half minutes. I'm sorry. But we'll stop with that for right now, guys. Have a great